So, Luke, this is an incredible journey that Luke's writing about. And actually, Luke is not just writing the nice Christmas story. What Luke is writing is revolutionary. What Luke is writing is going to get him into big trouble. He knows it. He's risking his life writing this stuff, but he's doing it anyway. And he says, at that time, this is chapter, uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, at that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Some people call him Cyrenius. Interesting. The governor of Syria and Israel, the Romans, really liked to uh, get under the skin of the Jewish and all the people that they were subjugating. They didn't like the Arabs. They didn't like the Jews. So what did they do? They shoved them together. And they call them all one governing area. That's interesting because that is rumbling on even to this day. All returned to their ancestral towns to register for this census. Because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. And he took with him Mary, who was engaged who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. If you were here last week or you were watching online, you remember that we looked at the way Matthew set the scene for the coming of Jesus into the world. And why Matthew wrote what he wrote. You remember that Matthew sets the scene by making reference to the fact that Herod was king at the time. And we looked at the sort of person that Herod was and why Jesus coming into the world was such a major, major revolution to the people living under the awful rule of King Herod and caught, trying to cope with the oppression that Herod brought. Today we're looking at the way Luke sets the scene in his gospel. And he's making a point. He's making a strong point. Whilst Matthew is writing his gospel primarily for the Jewish, Luke is writing his gospel for a different audience. In fact, you'll remember that when he opens up uh, the opening lines of his next book, the book of Acts, you'll see that Luke is writing, writing both Acts and his Gospel Luke to someone called Theophilus. Some traditions and some theologians believe that Theophilus was a, an actual person of high standing. Maybe some people thought he was a, a, a high-ranking Roman governor who was a believer and he was writing. But Theophilus is not exactly a Roman name. It's more of a Greek name. In fact, the name means friend of God, which is interesting. Because some traditions believe that Luke was writing both his gospel and the book of Acts to anyone who fitted that description, a friend of God, someone who was following God. And he was writing his writings, brilliant historian, to the people to encourage them. And this gives us a little bit of an understanding of the situation that Luke was writing into. But we need to ask the question, what was the world like at the time Jesus was born. Well, the world 
the known world at that time was ruled by the Roman Empire. This empire ruled everything in the, in the developed world. And how did they rule? How did the Romans, Romans rule everything? Well, even the history of our country uh, shows that the Romans were, the Romans were simply, uh, not Romans, <laughs> were simply a superbly organized killing machine. They slaughtered opposing armies, and they went on slaughtering anyone and everyone they came across. And they were capturing more and more land, more and more cities, more and more provinces and, and countries. And Rome conquered the world by a combination of terror, force, and annihilation. There was no diplomacy. There was no signing of agreements or anything like that. They crushed everything under their feet. Many historians quote that the Romans saw their boundaries of their awesome empire as the boundaries of the earth itself. They weren't going to stop. They were just going to keep taking land. Nothing was going to stop them achieving their goal. And all the time, the wealth of this empire was increasing and increasing. As they laid hold of the wealth and the resources of every nation and every people, they wasted and they conquered. The Jewish historian Josephus writes that the Roman centurions amused themselves by crucifying people and crucifying them in many different positions and poses. He writes in one account, space could not be found for the crosses, nor crosses for the bodies. So that was the sort of people that the Romans were. Crucifying people in many different positions just to amuse themselves. Such was their barbarity. Another historian, Plebes, on seeing the devastation and murder they left when attacking a city, is quoted as saying, it seems to me that they do this just for the sake of terror. In other words, he's saying there's no point to this kind of slaughter apart from to totally terrify anybody who is going to be in their way. It was, the, in fact, the Romans who invented crucifixion as the most historic form of torture and execution. They prided themselves on trying all different kinds of methods of execution, but crucifixion was their number one. And this is how they ruled at this time, and this is how they conquered the world. In biblical terms, there was a, a town close by Nazareth called Zephyrus, approximately about three miles away, and it's up on the hill. And the Roman general Verus crushed the revolt in that city. And in so doing, he lit a fire all around Zephyrus and burned the whole place down. So the actual village of Nazareth could see this whole other village burning in the distance, and it brought fear and oppression onto people. Verus totally destroyed the city of Emmaus, You'll remember Emmaus, where the two disciples were, were walking back after the resurrection of Jesus. Well, Verus, uh, not long after that, completely flattened that city and brought destruction to it. The Romans under Cassius also massacred a town called Teresa, which was also known as Magdala. And we know that that was the town where Mary Magdalene uh, was from. So you begin to get a feeling 
that the people around that time were not merely mildly affected by the rule of the Romans. They were deeply, deeply traumatized, terrorized. So much so that most families, you could probably say almost every family, had someone who'd been killed or tortured or crucified by them. Everyone, including Jesus, was well aware that they were living under the domination of this bloodthirsty authority. And this was Galilee in the first century. It was a terrorized, tortured, traumatized place. So the Roman Empire ruled the world. But who ruled the Roman Empire? The Roman Empire was ruled by a series of Caesars. Julius Caesar is probably the most famous because he was the first of the Caesars. But he really didn't rule all that effectively. He didn't really unify the provinces and all the people under his command. You could say he was too busy inventing a salad. Caesar salad? No, okay, anyway. But I'll not go through the whole list of Caesars, but eventually, in 27 BC, Julius Caesar... uh, had an adopted son, Octavian, came to power. And as soon as he came to power, he changed his name to Augustus. Augustus means holy one. It was he who managed to unite all the governmental system and therefore became the real center of power of this enormous empire. This was a monumental moment in human history. He was the most powerful human being on the planet. And he was leading the world's most powerful and only superpower. So Luke was writing his gospel. And he's wanting us to know that Augustus was ruling at the time of Jesus' birth. And Augustus ruled from Britain to India, the whole of the known world. And one of his first edicts that he made on coming to power was that Augustus, he was God incarnate himself. He was the Holy One. He was to be called Lord. And anyone who didn't call him Lord would be slaughtered. Wherever the Romans went, whenever they conquered new territories, they erected monuments and altars to pay homage to the god Augustus. For all that he had accomplished, for all the Roman world, in all the Roman world, altars were made. People were forced to worship the divine Caesar. To celebrate his birthday, Augustus inaugurated a period of 12 days leading up to it. And he called it Advent. And he would, where people would celebrate then and celebrate his divinity. He would mint special coins with inscriptions on them and distribute it round and circulate it round his, his empire to show that he was the most powerful person. And on those coins was the inscription, salvation is only found through Augustus. It puts a slightly different slant on how we look at Mark 12, 17, where Jesus is asked about who do, we, who do we pay tax to? Do we pay our tax? And Jesus says, bring me a coin. And he looks at the coin, and you can imagine Jesus looking at the coin and reading the inscription about Augustus and salvation being found 
in his name. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, well, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but give unto God what is God's. What he's actually saying is, Caesar thinks he's God, but he is not God. Give to Caesar what Caesar's, but don't, but give to God what is God. Caesar is not God. So Augustus literally sets himself up as the all-powerful incarnation of God on earth. And no one could question, no, no one could oppose, because they would be ruthlessly eradicated. In fact, his army, when they captured a town or city, they literally forced everyone in the city to promise allegiance by declaring, Caesar is Lord. And if they didn't say that, they would be slaughtered. The Roman army was a giant organization. And like any massive organization, it needed finance to keep it equipped and fed and trained. So the Romans imposed taxes on the people to fund the actions of their army. As I said last week, it's very possible that the ordinary Jewish family were taxed 80 to 90% of their total income. So you're a person living under this ruthless bloodthirsty system and you're breaking your back to pay taxes that go to fund this army that may have massacred people in your family and are going on massacring people in your friend's family and taking land and world, uh, around the world and heading it up, heading this system up is a man forcing everyone including you to declare that he is the Lord and God and salvation can only be found in him, there really doesn't seem to be an end to the total control that Caesar and the Romans had over the land. Their administration, their accounting, their uh, knowledge of who they had in their territory was enormous. And this was why the census was going to be taken, so that people could be taxed and more tax was paid. And he issued this decree for a census to be taken. So Joseph had to go back to his town of birth to make sure that he was paying the right amount of tax. Imagine what was going on in Joseph's head. He was worried about uh, his wife, his pregnant, his pregnant wife-to-be. He was worried about her, but he must have been absolutely filled with hatred for the Romans because he knew all he was going back for was to be properly, uh, what do they call it, when means-tested. That's right. So at this time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed it. This is the setting. This is the setting that Luke gives us. So what message is Luke bringing? All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. Because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, who was engaged to be married to him, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging for them available. It's interesting. It's almost like God orchestrated the whole 
thing. It seems a bit mean that there's no room for this pregnant lady. There's no warmth. All they've got is this tatty stable. And it's like God orchestrated that because God wanted to start off at the very lowest insignificant place because what the kingdom of light was coming up against, he was setting up this battle so well, the most insignificant, the most pathetic place to start, and yet God knew the final outcome. Luke is trying to say here that this mighty Caesar who controls almost the whole of civilization, slaughtering everybody and taking land at, at will. But here, in the tiniest corner of this massive empire, amongst a minority group of oppressed and traumatized people, a baby is being born. Being born to someone who's not even married yet, a virgin and a carpenter, a simple carpenter, Luke is planting a seed that will begin to grow and grow and grow. And there's nothing that this mighty Caesar can do about it. There's nothing that this incredible empire can do about it. You might have seen pictures of um, a seed or an acorn that falls into a little crevice in a rock and it starts to grow and it starts to uh, germinate and thicken and widen and eventually... This little tiny acorn splits the whole rock. And out of the top, you see a tree growing. That's exactly what was happening here. Augustus may be forcing everyone in this empire to call him Lord. But an empire is coming where people will call Jesus as Lord. It will be not an empire of oppression, but of freedom. And people will be empowered and not driven into poverty. If one of the first things that Jesus uh, said that he was going to come and do was to preach good news to the poor, and boy, were they poor because of the tax that they were paying. Luke is really saying that there are now two empires on earth. One is based on crushing people and enslaving them, and the other is based on loving people and freeing them. One is a kingdom of bondage. The other is a kingdom of liberation. One is built on oppressing people, and one is intent on setting the oppressed free. Luke is setting the scene for the biggest fight night ever. Jesus versus Caesar. Let's read a little further into chapter 2. It says that this, that night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding the flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David, and you will recognize him by this scene, the sign, you will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest 
and peace on earth to those whom God is pleased. One thing we have to realize here is the total bravery and courage of someone like Luke writing this account. He's virtually signing his own death warrant, but he pens this highly revolutionary propaganda, this gospel of his. What Luke was doing was highly political, and what early Christians was doing was highly revolutionary. Caesar Augustus, he loved all the PR stunts. You know, as a gesture of his generosity, in speech marks, and almighty provision, he would from time to time have his men enter into a town and distribute bread, saying to them, break this bread and remember that Caesar is Lord and thank him for all that he is doing for you. But this small, growing community of believers in this small corner of this empire would also be meeting together round a meal, and during the meal that they would break bread and remember the Lord Jesus and all that he had done for them. And he told them to carry on doing this until his return. It's what we do when we gather together. They knew exactly what they were doing, but they weren't going to stop. And more than that, it wasn't just an act of defiance towards Caesar. They were keen to make sure that when they broke bread, that everyone seated at the table had their other needs met as well. They sold land for each other. They distributed things. They helped out each other. They found out about each other's lives as they were eating. And the Christian community grew in love and strength. We see that from history, it was only 200 years from that point when Christianity was adopted by the whole Roman Empire. Christianity took over the whole Roman Empire. One of the facts that the Romans at that time couldn't get away from was each Caesar would in turn eventually die. Julius Caesar died. Augustus died. Nero died. Caligula died. Vespasian died. The Christians knew that Jesus had died, but that Jesus rose from the dead. Therefore, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. This was the journey that the people were on. A journey from tyranny to freedom. Our enemy is the devil. Still the same here in 2023. He's enslaved many, many people around the world. He's got them in darkness. They don't know that they have a Savior who is Jesus Christ. And uh, Paul writes in his book to the Romans, you see in chapter 5, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. He goes on to say, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. God is inviting every single one of us on this journey. 
a light has been has entered the world and this journey is about turning the whole world on and turning lights on all over the world you can imagine people being saved and another light going on and another light going on and another light going on there's a song that we just sang this morning hell's lost another one that's what the journey of Jesus is all about and he's come for you and he's come for me and if you're watching online right now and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian he's come for you also this is the journey this is the story of Christmas and he's come for you let's bow our heads right now We've set the scene this morning of this incredible journey of darkness ruling all over the world, chaos ruling all over the world, terror, enslavement. This is what sin does. This is what our enemy, the devil, does. And yet Jesus, entering into the world in the weakest most insignificant way was like that seed being planted in this enormous boulder and it would grow and grow and grow and split the boulder. And Jesus, we thank you that your death on the cross was not a permanent death for you. You died so that our sin could be cleansed, but you rose from the grave to declare that you are Lord of all the world. You died for us, you rose for us. And today, every Caesar is dead, but you are alive. You are our God. You are our Savior. Salvation is only found in you. Jesus, you are Lord. So we give our lives afresh to you. We say, Lord, take over our, our lives. Take us on a journey with you. Help us to see what you coming into the world was all about. Lord, we want to see lights going on around this world. And if there's a light that needs to go on in my heart right now, Lord, I pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you would impress on me that you came for me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would never perish, but would live eternally. Lord, thank you that you came for me. We worship you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.